merciful and merciful and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma Brothers, sisters, assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. So as was just uh, mentioned, so this is a mini-series on the prophethood of Prophet Islam, uh, Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad. Um, and it is part of a larger uh, curriculum or larger course. Uh, so just to recap very quickly and then maybe a quick reminder because last time we didn't have time to finish this part or this lesson. Uh, so initially the, the entire curriculum is based on establishing or giving at least a, an overview, an introductory overview of the belief system in Islam. So we started by introducing the idea of worldview and ideology. We spent a few lectures on that. Uh, and from there we went to exploring the existence of God. Once God was proved, we started talking about the attributes of God. So what kind of God are we believing in or are we talking about? Uh, and that was uh, all together, including the problem of evil in the world and free will, that became the first volume of this book that we're going through. Uh, and then we started the second volume, which is uh, specifically dedicated to the topic of prophethood and revelation. So we, we presented a first series that has to do with prophethood in general. Uh, so that includes all the topics, as we said, that should be applicable to all prophets. So not specifically to this or that prophet. So the big questions are, why do we need revelation, scripture, prophethood? One. Uh, and then, uh, what are the main traits, attributes of that revelation or that scripture and the people who carry it? So we talked about the infallibility, the necessity or the need for the infallibility of the revelation one we need uh, or the need for the infallibility of the person carrying that message so that's the infallibility of the prophets themselves and we talked about uh, the manner in which we can establish the validity of the claim when someone says I'm a prophet I'm someone who has received a communication from God then how am I supposed to know that this person is actually someone who has received that revelation from and uh, so that brought us into the topic of miracles and what are miracles and how do they differ from maybe other things that may seem to be breaking away with the natural order of things. Uh, and with that, we kind of wrapped up the topic that we refer to as general prophethood. So now we said, you know, in an ideal world, we would go through the prophethoods of every specific prophet, but we, this is an introductory course. It's very, very summarized and just an overview so we jumped right into what we consider to be since this is a class on islamic beliefs uh, the uh, prophethood of the prophet of islam specifically so uh, in, in a, to a very large extent this simply becomes a an application of what we have already said in general prophethood specifically to the prophethood of this man and uh, right from the beginning we said that Generally speaking, when we present the general prophethood, we said there are three big ways in which we can establish the prophethood of someone. The first is uh, to know that person yourself. So you have to have some sort of intimate knowledge of that person, basically their entire life. So that the moment they say, and God is revealing something to me, 
you can actually go back and see is this aligned with this kind of person and who they are and their history their biography their or is this someone who may try to do this let's say for personal gain or they're looking for fame or social status or money or so on and so forth so that's one way to to establish if you know for sure who this person is and you consider them to be entirely trustworthy and reliable in their claim and then they say i am receiving a message from God, then this may not be completely, I mean, it will always be uh, carrying a little bit of a shock factor, but it will not be out of the ordinary because of the nature of this person and what they, you already know about them. And we said in the majority of cases, for the majority of people, you will not have that kind of intimate knowledge and intimate awareness and, and proximity to someone, especially the people we're talking about, these prophets who existed centuries ago, so either you spend your whole life studying their, their lives and trying to come up with your own version of history and making sure that you know you come up with what you consider to be reliable and non-reliable and then compare the before and after of the message. Or you can move to the next manner in which you can establish the validity of that claim, which is to rely on prophecies that you already considered and took for granted. If you have a prior belief in another prophet and that belief is certain and sure and you're 100% sure of it and that prophet has told you that there's a prophet that's going to come after me, then that may be another way where you can believe in that ulterior, uh, uh, the, the prophet that comes afterwards, the subsequent prophet. And again, we said this may not be applicable to the majority of people once again because you may not have that prior belief in the first place especially if you're starting from scratch or you have doubts from anything that you have received before in terms of previous scriptures or so on and so forth. So the last manner in which you're supposed to be able to truly and really establish the validity of the claim of prophethood of someone is to be able to see, do they have a sign? Do they have something that they can bring forth as a proof to clearly establish that they have been sent from God? This becomes the main way in which you can establish the validity of the claim of someone who says, I am a prophet. They have to be doing something, performing something that can clearly establish to you and to the majority of people in a convincing manner that it would only be someone who has been sent from God with some sort of sign that's kind of acceptable to the majority of people, that this person can only have been sent from God to be able to do what they're doing. So, keeping all of this in mind, when we came to the Holy Prophet, we talked about the first two aspects, and we said we're going to concentrate a little bit more on the third, because, and the third being the main miracle of Prophet Muhammad. And as we said, there are books that have been written to go over a lot of the, the other miracles of his life. There's a book that lists between 5,000 and 6,000 of them, so you'd have to go back and kind of establish that. But we're putting all of that aside because, as we said, as is the case for all the other miracles of all the other prophets, they're not today in our hands. We can't really put them under a microscope or look at them or study them. They're not within our reach. And this would apply to all the other miracles of Prophet Muhammad as well. The only thing that we have left is the main miracle, which is the Holy Quran. And it was presented as a miracle from day one. And the miracle was something that was being built upon over 23 years. 
So what we started looking into in the last time we met is to try to look at the, some of the main aspects of the miraculous nature of the Quran. And so again, this is just to recap where we left off. So we said that in this lesson, the, the, the author was concentrating on three main aspects of this miraculous nature of the Quran. The first one had to do with what is generally referred to as the eloquence and the rhetoric of the Quran. And we'll go back to, to a couple of points about each. The second aspect was the illiteracy of the messenger himself. Prophet Muhammad was considered an illiterate man. And the last one, which we did not touch yet, so we'll talk about, about that one today, is the fact that if you look at the period of the revelation of the Quran over 23 years, you'll notice that there is no contradiction. So this is not something that took place, let's say, uh, at one point in time. It's something that took 23 years to be completed. So you would expect to see some sort of, you would expect to see some sort of differentiation, discrepancy, and yet we don't find any of that. And uh, I'm gonna skip the preliminary remarks. We went over that. Uh, so as we said, the Holy Quran presented itself as a challenge right from day one. Uh, and basically the argument goes that if you do not accept the challenge and cannot duplicate what's in it, then you have to accept that this man is actually sent from God. That's a simplified version of the argument. <clears throat> and today the claim of Muslims is obviously that this challenge still stands. And then we have a number of verses of the Quran that clearly say you have to either duplicate the entire book or if you can, you cannot then duplicate 10 of its chapters, 10 of its surah, and if you can't, then at least duplicate one of its chapters. <clears throat> and if you cannot, then you have to accept that this message is from God. This has to be combined with the fact that from day one, Prophet Muhammad was really uh, confronted with a lot of enmity. So it was not a very popular call. It was not a very popular invitation. He broke away with the social order, with the cultural order, with the religious order, with the financial order of his time. And that's why he was persecuted. Anyone who followed him were persecuted. He had to leave his city. They tried to kill him a few times before he really made his, his message uh, public. And then afterwards it became an open war. He had to leave. Anyone who followed him were tortured and persecuted. And history is very, very clear about all of this. So all of this to say when you put it together, so when you combine the, on the one side, you have an open challenge to this new religion and to this new ideology being presented. And on the other side, there are a lot of reasons. There should be a lot of incentive for someone to try to show that the challenge has been accepted and the challenge has actually been met and met successfully. So there were a lot of reasons for that from day one. And anyone who understands that, the history of Islam and until today, the challenge still stands and the enmity towards one way or another, confrontation, whether ideology, ideological or other, still stands. So there's still a lot of drive, a lot of incentive, a lot of reason for a lot of people to try to show that it is not in fact inimitable and that it can be duplicated in one way or another. I think that's, uh, that's all we covered here. So. About the first aspect of the natural dimension, uh, the, uh, the miraculous aspect or the miraculous nature of the Quran. The main points that we said is what we're looking for is a combination of two things. 
Sometimes we look, when we look at a text, we're looking at the content of the message itself, and sometimes we're looking at the manner in which the talk, that message was communicated. The majority of the studies over time, and since the beginning of the revelation of the Quran, have really concentrated on the manner in which that message was revealed. And this is, I mean, it, it should go without saying, and we talked a little bit about it, at the time that the Quran was revealed, this was very important to the Arabs, because eloquence and rhetoric represented a huge part of their lives. Their life was entirely based on how eloquent someone is, how they are, how masterful they are in using poetry, and so on and so forth. And this is the reason, as we said, that Prophet Muhammad's miracle happens to be with the, let's say, the oral word and the, the nature of the Quran, which is different from a uh, concrete, material, temporal miracle. That's the reason, or part of the reason. So the beginning of the studies that had to do with the miraculous nature of the Qur'an were really concentrating on the format. You're looking at the style, you're looking at the rhetoric, you're looking at the, the, the stylistic aspect, and we went through a number of examples through this. So the word choice, the construction, the terminology, uh, the expressive power, the imagination or imaginative power, style, connotation, grammar, and so on and so forth. And each one of these, as we said, volumes upon volumes have been written about each one of these textual aspects, stylistic aspects about the whole Quran. That said, when we go back to the narrations, when we go back to the hadith, the sayings of the Prophet and the Imams, we see a, an insistence on looking beyond the format, on looking beyond the stylistic aspect. <clears throat> and we'll talk about that in a second. But really, when they say you have to meditate on the Quran, you have to understand its meanings, you have to understand the layers of meanings in it. What they're talking about usually is not just the format. What they're talking about is more the content, the substance of the message. And with time, we know, and people who have studied Arabic attest to this, that today the ability, the affinity, the masterfulness of the Arabic language is, does not even come close to what the Arabs at the time of the Holy Prophet were able of doing with the Arabic language. And that's why to them, when they were <coughs> listening to the Quran as it was being revealed and it was being recited by Prophet Muhammad as it was happening live, many of them would enter just by hearing the words because to them it was an intuitive knowledge of the language that was clearly telling them this is not a human construction. Today, that ability, that affinity, that familiarity with the Arabic language is almost not found anywhere. So this has been lost. No one can really replicate that masterfulness that the Arabs at that time had with the Arabic language. So what's left is going to be what we look at a little bit more in the next proofs. But a lot of studies, if you sit and spend a lot of time, let's say, studying the grammar of the Qur'an or, or how the Qur'an uses repetition or how the Qur'an uses a certain vocabulary, uh, of course, you can become an expert in that field, and that still exists, and that's why we say there's a lot of experts today who concentrate on this. But the, the stories that we, we went through in history, and they are very well known, is that these Arabs were reacting in this manner to the Quran before Arabic grammar was codified. We did not have our, the understanding of the academic understanding of the Arabic language that we have today at that time. 
These people were using the language as, as many of the uh, specialists tell us. Arabic language was seldom written, it was an oral thing. And in the majority of cases, dots have not had not been put in place. Uh, they did not use the small vowels that we use today to, to clearly make the words uh, well known. That's because they didn't really need anything to be written. They relied entirely on memory. They could recite hundreds of verses of poetry the first time they heard them, and so on and so forth. Their life was basically their masterfulness of the Arabic language. And so when they would hear the words, they would actually feel have an experience. And we went through a number of them who were considered to be the biggest enemies of, of Prophet Muhammad, and some of them came to try to have a debate or a discussion with him, and instead of going on back and forth, which he did in other instances with them, he simply recited some verses of the Quran, and th those were enough for them to uh, have a, a, an entire kind of existential experience and go back to the people and say, just tell them he's a sorcerer. We're not sure what's happening. This, these are not human words, and they're not demonic words or satanic words. We're not sure what they are, but the manner in which they're put together should not be uh, something within the ability of a normal human being. And these people are the ones who are considered the most eloquent and the most masterful in the Arabic language. So when they're telling that to the others, and they were used as the big referees and judges of poetry at that time, that's when even those who may not be as knowledgeable, and this applies to us today, this is where we see, go back to the expert and we'll talk about that. What does the expert say about this? I may have my doubts. It may be not within my reach, but certainly someone else can, can match this. And that's why I think we have a couple of questions about this too. This is kind of very, very difficult to uh, make someone fully appreciate if they do not have the Arabic language. Okay? Um, okay, so we can go over this. The last point here that we had is someone may ask, so how come, and the question was asked again and again over the centuries, uh, and in one case, we have Imam al-Hadi, there was a scholar by the name of Ibn Sikit who came to him and he said, and so this is about two centuries after Prophet Muhammad's death, and he said, how come that Prophet Musa was sent with the specific miracles that he was sent with? So he had a cane, he would put his hand in his pocket and it would come out uh, shining like a bright sun and so on and so forth. Why was Prophet Jesus sent with the miracles that he was sent with? And why was Prophet Muhammad sent with this specific miracle and not others? And the answer was that God, when he sends a prophet, he sends them with the miracle that is most appropriate for the people of that time and what's considered to be the highest level of expertise in that field. So in the time of Prophet Musa, the highest level of expertise was considered to be in magic. And so he was sent to show them that God is going to give them a sign that the biggest experts, the most respected people of that society would recognize as something that is not matchable by human effort. No human can ever duplicate what Prophet Musa was doing. At the time of Prophet Isa it was a combination. So people, there was arrogance about the ability, the medical ability of people combined with a lot of disease. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent Prophet Isa, Prophet Jesus, with a lot of miracles related to the physical body of the human being, healing and raising from the dead and so on and so forth. The same thing with Prophet Muhammad at his time. The Arabs, their entire lives were around this Arabic language and how masterful they were with it. And we see the Quran again and again reminding them that 
you know, repeat this. These are simple Arabic letters, and a lot of our scholars say that's the reason why a lot of the, the chapters of the Quran start with these the letters. So, Alif, Lam, Mim. These are three letters. So, one of the reasons why, one of the interpretations why these letters are beginning, of course, there's a, a, a hidden code, that, and there's all sorts of theories about what that code is. Uh, but the general message with that is this is a constant reminder from God that see what I am giving you, these verses of the Quran, the chapters and the, the verses that make them, and they are built from this most simple of things, which is the letter. So I combine these letters in these ways, and you get this entire Quran. So you should be able to replicate this. So why don't you try? Right? That's the, the idea. So as we said, we gave the, a number of stories. So anyone who goes back to the, the study of the history of the biography of the Prophet is going to find these names. So Al-Walid ibn al-Murira was considered one of the most eloquent men of the Arab world. And of course, a huge enemy of Prophet Muhammad. Again, with Utba ibn Rabi'a, we're not going to repeat the stories. Uh, and so they came to confront Prophet Muhammad in both cases. In one case, he was already praying and he was reciting verses of the Quran. And in the other one, he decided to just recite verses of the Quran to Utba ibn Rabi'a. And both of them went back saying these are words that are beyond human capability. And we also said that there have been many, many attempts from early on, and they continue until today, of people trying to uh, present something that they consider to be a duplication of what's found in the Quran. Uh, so some of these happened at the time of Imam Sadiq so now we're in, you know, around one century after the passing of the Prophet. And uh, these three men, they came together, they were considered extremely eloquent and, and they were also heretics uh, at that time, uh, rejecting uh, Islam at that time, but living in, in the Islamic lands in Mecca. So they would come because Mecca and the pilgrimage were simply considered to be a, a, also a social gathering moment and place for people whether you believed or not and so they they came together and they made a deal with themselves that they would spend the next year working on creating verses of the uh, verses that would match or duplicate what's found in the quran and they would come back and put them together uh, and so when they met the year after that all three of them had absolutely not a single verse to put together with any any of the other efforts uh, and Imam Sadiq was passing by and he recited this verse, should all human, uh, humans and the jinn rally to bring the like of this Qur'an, they will not bring the like of it, even if they assisted one another. So these, I think we, we went over quickly and we don't need to uh, go over all these details. So that's one dimension. The second dimension is when we look at the Qur'an and we look at the type of content that is pr produced or provided or presented by the Qur'an, we see that, first of all, it is extremely accurate and detailed, one. Two, it's extremely varied. It goes from one topic to another, and I think I, I listed some of them and it's uh, a little bit later. And that's why, you know, in this case, the author is saying, for instance, that to go into that uh, level of depth and breadth today, you would have teams of researchers working together and specializing in a field, and they may or may not reach a truth, and then that's in one field or in a specific topic. And if they are to able, able to reach a certain truth, then they may or may not be able to communicate it properly to others. In this case, we have a lot of truths, and they are presented as a challenge, 
They touch a lot of fields and they go in a lot of details. And so here there's a listing of some of them. They're, they're not all necessarily in the book, so I, I did some. Uh, so we have ideology, we have morality, we have legislation, cosmology, social systems, familial systems, worship rituals, historical tales, pedagogical, psychological. Uh, and in all these cases, and this is very important in Islam, there's always an individual dimension and there's a collective dimension. There's nothing that is only one. There's nothing in Islam that is only good for the individual. It's always, if it's for the individual, it's within a community and a society. And it's, if it's good for society, it also has to be good for the individual too. And uh, so this is where we start going a little bit more into the content. So. Before we were concentrating more on the format, here we have to look, start looking into the content. And so we're saying here, all of this is always plus the aesthetic dimension that we had and we mentioned previously. And of course, the intended purpose for all of this is that the maximum amount of people benefit from it. So it has to be a language where the simplest of minds can understand and the most subtle and complex and sophisticated of minds. One. And two, the ultimate purpose in all of this is, this is not a book of science, this is not a book of history, this is a book of spiritual guidance. So when it talks about any of these other topics, it's not to become a textbook in that other field. It's to mention it to bring you back to God. It's to mention it to help you in your happiness in this world and the next. It's not so that it becomes, you know, a curriculum to be taught at a university like it's a, a, a scientific textbook, let's say. So here, what we're saying, or as the argument is presented, is that when you combine, as we said, the depth and breadth, how meticulous, how accurate the information is in the Quran, with the fact that this happened 14 centuries ago, and it was, it was not brought forth by a man who was, let's say, known to be a scholar sitting in some library doing a lot of research all his life. Not at all. And this is the importance of this argument about the illiteracy of Prophet Muhammad, that he was never known to have ever been taught how to read or to write. He never had a book, he never wrote in a book, he never read in front of anyone or wrote anything. And this is something that was used afterwards in the Quran as an argument itself. And we'll come back to a couple of the verses. So you add that with the fact that when you look at the type of communication, and this is something that the Arabs of that time should have been able to recognize right away. Prophet Muhammad, of course, when you took the entire revelation, the entire scripture, and you put it together, you get the Quran, which is, you know, this book between the two covers that we see, and it has about 6,000, let's say about five, 600 verses. But this is a man who was living with them for 22 years, and he, of course, spent the rest of his life communicating normally with the people. And his normal communication was very different from the revelation. No one ever mixed up a verse of the Quran with a saying of the Prophet, ever. It has never happened, not in his time and not afterwards. Because the style of the Quran is very distinct, it's very clear. It has its own, it's not poetry, it's versified, but it's not verses. It may rhyme and it may not rhyme and so on and so forth. The style is extremely distinctive, very clear. And for 40 years before, as he lived with these people, he had never uttered anything like it before. And that's why they were clearly seeing that this broke away with what he had been doing or saying for the last 40 years. 
And so here you have three verses from the Qur'an that refer to this argument from different angles. In one of them it says, and you did not recite any book before it. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking directly to the Prophet Muhammad saying, and you did not recite any book before it, nor did you write it with your right, with your hand. For then the impugners, those who disbelieve, would have been full of doubt. Because they could have said, you were reading that in some other book. You found a scripture, you found old tales, as they actually did say. And this is when the Qur'an started using this argument. Say, had Allah so wished, I would not have recited it to you, nor would have made it known to you. I have indeed dwelled a lifetime among you before it. Will you then not apply reason? And so this is the second part of the, the argument, which is, in the first one, it's this is an illiterate man. And the second one is, he's been living with them his whole life. So if there was any way for them to bring him, uh, associate him with any other scripture, any other book, it should be very easy for them. In the last uh, verse, and if you are in doubt concerning what we have sent down to our servants, so this is Prophet Muhammad, then bring a surah, a, a chapter, min mithlihi, we said there's a second interpretation because the Arabic here is ambiguous. Either it means uh, you have to bring a chapter like the chapters of the Quran, or the other interpretation here is and you have to bring a chapter from someone like him. So like it or like him. You, the ha is, is very, it's, you can't really tell both work here. So the other version of this verse would basically say, there's the miraculous aspect of the Quran is basically amplified or multiplied by the factor that this is an illiterate man. So not only do you have to match it, you have to match it from an illiterate man. You have to match it from someone who lives, you know, in the desert between these Bedouins in the middle of nowhere without access to anything. Okay, that's the, the argument. And then the last aspect of the miraculous nature of the Quran as presented here is that if we look at the history of the moment, from the moment that revelation started until the moment it ended, that revelation took 23 years in total. And it was not just a very straightforward, easy 23 years. It was extremely eventful. He was, he went from, uh, you know, leading a group of five, ten people, hiding away. Uh, they went through a famine, they hid between the mountains with a group of people that slowly grew to about a hundred people. And then finally, because of all sorts of political and other familial and tribal reasons, they were finally allowed to start living again, but then they were persecuted and tortured. He sent a group of his people to Africa, to Abyssinia, and he stayed there. And then when this became intolerable for him and his followers, he finally decided, he knew that night he was going to be assassinated, so he left the city of Mecca, and finally he landed in the city of Medina, a few hundred kilometers away. And then this is where he began a different type of starting to build an Islamic community, because he was received in a completely different way. So they were completely in agreement with the teachings that he was giving them, because he helped them for social reasons, historical reasons, so on and so forth. So that chapter in the Medina, which lasted about 10 years, is a little bit different socially and culturally from the 13 years in Mecca. In any case, when you look at all of this, and you see the, the, the difficulties, the social conditions, so on and so forth, that last 23 years, you would expect a normal human being to go through all sorts of change, of evolution, of development. You're going through experiences that should obviously have an impact on your life. He went from being a simple man in a simple family to now leading a very rapidly growing group of people 
that are expanding geographically, expanding culturally. You would assume that this man's knowledge of the world is increasing. You would assume that his understanding of the world is changing and developing and maturing. But you get none of that if you read the Quran. If you go through the chronological revelation of the Quran from beginning to end, the tone, the manner in which it was done, it's the same. There is as much, let's call it scientific uh, fact in the Quran from the beginning as there is in the end. In Surah Al-Alaq, when you know, the first verses of the Quran read or recite in the name of your Lord, it says, who created with the clinging mass Al-Alaq, people are still writing volumes about this, that this idea of Al-Alaq, the clinging blood clot. Okay, this is the first revelation. And then Surah Al-Qalam, Nun Wal-Qalam, and you read that and it's full of scientific, it's not something that grew. You see it from day one, and you see it on year 23. There is no discrepancy. There is no change in tone. There is no more or less, you know, stylistic change. Of course, the verses that talk about laws have a, a certain uh, intonation and a certain versification, a certain style. Verses that present stories are different. Verses that talk about uh, things related to the hereafter or the events that will rapidly happen. Uh, leading to the ultimate uh, day of judgment and so on and so forth. They have their own style. But in terms of content, you do not see an evolution in his person. And you see that in the hadith. You see that in his life. But you don't see that in the Quran. Okay, so people who have studied the Quran have presented that, and this is what's being presented here, as one other factor, one other aspect of the miraculous nature of the Quran is that in addition to the fact that this is coming from an illiterate man, from that society 14 centuries ago and with the type of depth and breadth of the knowledge that we're presenting we're saying that there's no evolution in what we're seeing and so here the the author is basically saying there's two things the first is that it would be normal to see that there is a difference in the factual knowledge and the awareness of any human being going through this type of evolution in life, development in life, experience in life, over 23 years, as eventful as those were. So it's the information itself, that's one. And then the second one is, it's normal to see that there's a change in someone's value system. You would see that the manner in which you would deal with others would change from time to time. Especially, let's say, if you were a very simple man, and then you go you know, over a certain period of time, many years, almost a generation later, you are now dealing with an empire and dealing with other uh, leaders, call them kings or call them social leaders, political, military. You would expect that there's some sort of evolution. How do you deal with people? How do you deal with diplomacy? How do you change the way you're, you're supposed to interact? You can find none of that in the Quran. From beginning to end, the message is the same. The tone is the same. The psychology is the same. So these were, generally speaking, the main points given in this lesson. So here I'm just basically adding a little bit of compliment because I thought that there's more points to add and based on some of the questions that we heard. Yes. Can I ask a yes, yes. Say the, uh, with like the 7 billion people on Earth and the 350 million Arabs, I'm sure you know where I'm going with this. And considering there's such a huge emphasis on the Arabic language itself, and most Muslims are non-Arabs, and even the Arabs that do exist don't have a command of the language that the Arabs had when the Quran was revealed. How could it be used as such a as a as a, as a universal book mm -hmm. 
for all times and all places, when it seems like it could only be understood by specific people in a specific time. So how, how would you reconcile that with the universality of Quran and yeah. So inshallah in the last, uh, in this mini series, in the last uh, lesson or two lessons, lesson and a half, we're going to get back to the universality and the, uh, what we call al-khatamiyah, so the, the finality of the revelation through the Prophet and the, why the Quran says that it's the final revelation and then what does it mean? Because finality and universality have to go together, otherwise there's going to be a problem. Um, so we're going to come back to that in more detail and more, more uh, we're going to present it as a, as a standalone topic. But generally speaking, that's why we're saying, yes, you can to understand fully this aspect, the miraculous aspect. To understand it fully, you have to have some sort of, you know, advanced knowledge of Arabic language. Okay, that's one. But putting that aside, there is still enough miraculousness in the Quran from the other aspects and this is what we're going to talk about right now. Uh, we're going to come back because the author talked, and so I tried to follow the same pattern and the same logic of the lesson. The author presented things in a very general manner. He didn't give examples. So we're going to give a few examples. Today, the majority of the people who are reading and studying the Quran from outside, the majority of them, I would say, have some sort of technical background. Those are the people who are emphasizing on the miraculous nature of the Qur'an. So they either do statistical research on the Qur'an, they are coming from an engineering background, a medical background, biology, geology. They study those dimensions in the Qur'an that even though you're not getting the full picture because you don't have the Arabic language, the way in which it's presented, if you want to be objective and accurate and say, when should humanity have been able to have access to that kind of information in this kind of way, and we're going to read a couple of quotes around that, they don't speak Arabic, but they have technical knowledge, which means that we have to do a better job concentrating as, you know, it would be beautiful if someone can come and do a translation of the Quran, and many have tried, so there are translations of the Quran, and I've seen the French and the English ones that are openly stating we are trying to duplicate the beauty of the language. Okay. Yeah, no, no, so the, no, it is like, let's say Jacques Berck, for instance, in French, he tries to show that it's a beautiful, there's a, a, a tone or intonation, and the manner it has a cadence, it has a rhythm. And so he tries to duplicate that in the way he, he translates into French. In English, we have that, especially before, if you go back to a century or seven years ago, there was a lot of efforts on that. And, but usually you lose something else by doing that. Because you're concentrating on the language, you lose the content. Well, it doesn't mean that we should give up, but there's a lot more work that needs to be done on both sides. So many have only emphasized on, okay, let's put the Arabic language aside and just concentrate on the content. What is it actually trying to say? Or to the best of our understanding, what is this, what's the best interpretation of this? So yes, absolutely, it's problematic, and inshallah we're gonna come back to that and address it in more detail. But it's not sufficient to say it's in Arabic, therefore I put it aside. It's, it would be the same thing as, you know, in, in the case of the Qur'an, there's an additional layer. But that's not the full picture. Yes, the Arabic language is a huge part of the miraculous nature of the Qur'an, but that's not the entire story. So I do need to spend a bit of time understanding, if I want to take it seriously, understanding what, what's the message here. Thank you.
Yeah, I'm aware of the time. So the next point here is, yeah, I'm gonna go a little bit faster because I'm trying to finish for seven or five. Um, inshallah, we're gonna come back to that. But very quickly, the link with the universality and the, uh, the seal of revelation and the universality is that if the miracle of Prophet Muhammad was a temporal miracle, was a material miracle like all other miracles, then it would have been limited in time and it would not have been something accessible to humanity to work on later for everybody to study. That's the whole point. And inshallah, we're going to come back to that. But in short, that's the main argument here. Okay, so that's something to simply keep in mind for now. The second point is as we said, and this is something to keep in mind, not everyone is always going to be able to distinguish the miraculous nature of anything. So this is why we're, we emphasize, you have two ways of establishing it. Either you're an expert or yourself, or you have to spend time acquiring that expertise. To say when Prophet Musa throws his cane and it becomes a snake, is that a miracle from God? Or is he doing some sort of magic trick? How do I know? Well, I have to understand magic. I have to spend time understanding, is this possible in the way that I just saw it or not? And this is why it was only the magicians who were able to right away say, well, this is not magic, and they believed right away. The rest of the commoners, when they look at this, well, the magicians are, are making their, their ropes and their canes move, and Musa is too, so what's the difference? To, to a commoner, you're not going to be able to distinguish. So you have to go either educate yourself and gain the expertise for yourself. And so this would apply to the Quran, but it would apply everywhere else. Before I say something is a miracle, this breaks away with the normal, what a normal human being should be able to do. I have to become a little bit of an expert in that field. So this applies to all the prophets. And of course, it applies to the Holy Quran as well. So a point to keep in mind. So that's why we said two ways to establish the miraculous nature of anything. You either become an expert yourself, and that's why we went through some of the testimony of those experts, or we said you have to study it directly yourself. The theory of surfa. So I'm just mentioning this in case some of you hear about it, because you know this is supposed to be a, a course that gives an overview, very high-level introductory course, but. If you go back in history, in, in Ilm al-Kalam, so the, the, the field of Islam that presents Islamic theology, over time there's a school of thought that when the scholars were studying the miraculous nature of the Qur'an, they came up with a theory, and that remained in, in, in vogue and it remained popular for, for quite a few centuries. And we have some scholars who still believe in that today. And that theory is usually presented in Arabic. They say, So what is it? So I'm only mentioning it in case you hear about it. Nadariyat al-Sarfa is basically the idea that it is not the nature of the Quran itself and the manner in which it's put together and the manner in which it presents and communicates its message. That's miraculous. What's miraculous is the fact that God has dissuaded or diverted or pushed people away from trying to duplicate the Quran. But had they tried, had there been more attempts, someone may have been able to match it because it seems so simple. It's just made of letters, it's made of words. If people just keep trying, eventually we will have someone able to duplicate the Quran. That's the, the gist, the, uh, at a high level, 
So the idea is that the miraculousness is that God diverted people, pushed people away from continuing to try to duplicate the Quran. That's Nadariyat al-Safa. And the weakness of that theory is, first of all, well, there were a lot of people who tried and they continue to try today. And anyone who, and I invite you, go and see how many attempts there are going on still today with people presenting things, parts, and saying, you know, they, these match or are even better than the Quran until they're studied. So that's one. And over history, many, many attempts, very well known. That's one. Two, they basically made a very a mistake, a very simple mistake that they should not have made. When we say that a miracle, and we went through this when we talked about miracles in the nature, what's a miracle? Does a miracle mean, if we say something is miracles, does it mean that it's impossible? Well, it depends. It's impossible in the sense that it breaks away with what we are accustomed to. But it doesn't break away with the main laws of causality. But we don't have access to the laws which allow the miracle to happen. But the prophets do, and that's why they can do the miracle that they do. Right? So we're saying it's not a logical impossibility. A miracle is not a logical impossibility. It's just that it seems that they are using laws which God explains to them and gives them in an intuitive way, not in an acquired textbook way, in a spiritual way. They are taught laws to manipulate nature or do things in the universe that break away with the natural order of things that human beings can discover and explore and, and master. That's the nature of a miracle. The problem I think that the majority of these scholars fell into is that they confounded these two kinds of possibility. So is it possible to duplicate the Quran? Well, it depends. Logically, yeah, it is possible to duplicate it. But on the ground, in the facts of life, based on the laws of nature that we understand, no one has, and it's actually challenging the humanity and the jinn together to try to duplicate it. And if it was a logical impossibility, then the challenge doesn't make any sense. Right? So it, I hope that's clear, but... Okay. I don't understand, what do you mean? Like, um, it's, challenge, it's challenging people that they can't make a book like this. Mm -hmm. So it's basically saying it's impossible to make a book like this. But so, so what we're saying is there's two types. When we say impossible, do we mean that it's a logical impossibility? Mm -hmm. Logically impossible? Or logically it is possible, except that we don't know how. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you an example. If you say one plus one equals two, okay. or two is an even number, that's a logical necessity. Two is an, an even number. Is a, you can't separate the evenness from two. You cannot have a two and it's not an even number. It's an odd number. You can't have a two that's odd. It has to be an even number. That's a lot. So it's logically impossible. The brain does not accept that. Does your brain not accept the idea that maybe someone could match the Quran? Put your belief aside. We're not talking about you, you may believe or you may not believe. That's not the, the, the point. Okay. The point is logically, is it possible to duplicate a book, the Quran, or not? Yes, it's impossible. No, it is possible. Of course it's possible. How? Like there's some like signs like the sea is split and Nabi Allah Muhammad like wrote that down, sallallahu alayhi wa wrote it down like 
before, and he was only living in Mecca and Medina, like he didn't travel abroad. And the, the, that sea is way up, like across the earth. So how is it possible that he would just believe a random traveler, if a random traveler came and told him? Let's use another example. There are people who came to, to Imam Ali السلام, and they told him, can your God create a rock that is so heavy that he cannot himself lift? Yeah. What is that? Is it possible or impossible? It's impossible. That is a logical impossible. Yeah. Duplicating the Quran is not a logical impossible. You can imagine someone duplicating the Quran. But because of your belief system, you're saying that it's not possible. But logically, there is no impossibility. There is no logical necessity. There is no philosophical principle or law that says the Quran cannot be duplicated. Or that someone can't put a cane on the ground and it becomes a snake. Or that someone can't raise people from the dead. These are not logical poss impossibilities. They're based on the laws that we understand of nature today. And most likely that we will ever understand of nature. We will never be able to use these laws in this way. But God always works within the system that he has created. That we don't understand fully. And miracles fall in that system, that part that we don't understand. Okay. So I'm not going to spend more time on the theory of Sulfa. It's just to say, like, it's long story short, it's, I think, a very weak theory, very easy to, to dis, uh, refute. Uh, and we have many of our scholars who seem to have followed that theory, including Sayyid al-Murtala or some words, uh, words from Alam al-Hilli or even Sheikh al-Tawsi when he explains the work of Sayyid al-Murtala. He seems to follow it, although he contradicts that in another book, later book. And he says, I only followed that and I explained it out of respect to my teacher because I'm explaining his book and commenting on it. So I followed the theory of Sarfa, although the truth is the theory of Sarfa is not the truth. And the truth is that the Quran is miraculous on its own and not because God diverted people from it. And there's, you know, the Quran contradicts this theory, but we're not going to go. That's more for advanced uh, courses. And here we have a list of a few of the other aspects, but I mean, it's, there's so many of them. And if you're interested, I mean, there is a 12 volume, there's a 15 volumes, there's a 20 volume. There's an entire tafsir of the Quran written in 30 volumes that takes the Quran from the beginning to the end. Sheikh Pampawi wrote it. And it's only based on the scientific miraculousness of the Quran. Okay, so if you want to look into this, there's a lot of content and uh, very easy to look up. And here we have... Uh, you know, the accuracy of the knowledge of the natural world, that's, uh, that's considered uh, miraculous prophecies. We didn't talk about them, but there are many, many in the Quran. And we'll mention a few of them very quickly. Then there's the logical strength and ambiguity. So there are no logical problems or philosophical uh, issues. And the, the Quran presents a lot of, let's call them philosophical arguments. And we went through a lot of them, especially when we talked about the existence of God. We talked about the attributes of God and so on and so forth. There is never any weakness or problem. And in fact, the majority of the philosophers of Islam have only relied on those arguments and retold them in plain language, right? Uh, the plurality or the layering of the meanings uh, and so on and so forth. So a few examples from the Quran very quickly. So from embryology, this is one verse. And for each of these, we have a lot of verses, but for from embryology. Uh, this is from Surah Al-Mu'minun. Certainly we created the human being from an extract of clay. Then we made him a drop of fluid or seminal fluid lodged in a secure abode. Then we created the drop of fluid as a clinging blood clot. Then we created the clinging blood clot 
as a fleshy tissue. Then we created the fleshy tissue as bones. Then we created the bones, uh, clothed, clothed the bones with uh, flesh. Then we produced him as yet another creature. And this is usually where the scholars say this is where the soul enters the, the body. So blessed is Allah, the best of creators. So this is today, this, these verses are still studied and there are books being written about these few verses. This is one of them. This is three verses uh, of the Quran combined with the other verses in embryology. Entire books are being written about this. In geology, did we, make, did we not make the earth as a wide resting place and the mountains as pegs? And so in geology today, they say that if you understand how mountains work and the roles that they have, earth is more like a kind of like a cover or a drape or uh, something that would move very quickly. But then it was stabilized with these pegs, with these stakes, which are the, the mountains. Okay, he cast firm in the earth mountains, lest it should shake with you in another verse. So when you put these together, this is kind of like geological <coughs> knowledge that should not have been made clear to someone 14 centuries ago. Anemophily or the wind pollination, and we send the we send the fertilizing winds, in Arabic, and we send the fertilizing winds and send down water from the sky, providing it for you to drink. Of course, 14 centuries ago they did not know that plants are being pollinated by the wind. Okay? In meteorology or the, the study of clouds, nephology. Have you not seen that Allah gently drives the clouds, then he composes or joins them, then he piles them, whereat you see the rain issuing from its midst, and he sends down from the sky out of mountains, and there's an ambiguity here about mountains, hail, and he strikes with it whomever he wishes and turns it away from he, whomever he wishes, then brilliance, the brilliance of its lightning almost takes away the sight. So this is the manner in which clouds are formed, and the, how precipitation is caused. Once again, it's quite accurate. And that cosmology, there's a lot of verses. Here are, I think, two or three of them. Then he turned to the heavens when it was smoke. This, so this is only a part of a verse. I didn't put the whole verse. So the idea that heaven was smoke is very interesting. Have those who disbelieve not seen that the heavens and the earth were interwoven, then, unravel, then we unraveled them, and we made from water every living thing. Will they then not believe? And in another verse it says, And the sky we built it with might, and it is we who are indeed its expanders. So this people who study the Big Bang and the expansion of the universe and all of that, there is a lot of content for, for you to go into. And so here are a few examples of scientific validation. These are not, none of these are uh, Islamic scholars. So Keith Moore, I'm not going to read all their credentials, Professor Emeritus of Anatomy and Cell Biology, and he has a number of books. He writes that it is clear to me that these statements, especially about embryology, must have come to Muhammad from God or Allah because most of this knowledge was not discovered until many centuries later. This proves to me that Muhammad must have been a messenger of God or Allah. E. Marshall Johnson, and this is professor and chairman of the Department of Anatomy and, and Developmental Biology, uh, he writes, in summary, the Qur'an describes not only the development of external form, but emphasizes also the internal stages, the stages inside the embryo of its creation and development, emphasizing major events recognized by contemporary science. So I see nothing here in conflict with the concept that divine intervention was involved in what he was able to write. Professor Persol, Professor of Anatomy and Pediatrics, Child Health, he writes, it seems to me that Muhammad was a very ordinary man. He couldn't read, didn't know how to write. In fact, he wasn't illiterate. 
we're talking about uh, 1,400 years ago, you have some illiterate person making profound statements that are amazingly accurate of a scientific nature. I personally can't see how this could be mere chance. There are too many accuracies, and like Dr. Moore, I have no difficulty in my mind reconciling that this is a divine inspiration or revelation which led him to these statements. Alfred Kroner, professor of the Department of Geoscience, thinking where Muhammad came from, I think it is almost impossible that he could have known about things like the common origin of the universe because scientists have only found out within the last few years with very complicated and advanced technological methods that this is the case. Somebody who did not know something about nuclear physics 1400 years ago could not, I think, be in a position to find out from his own mind, for instance, that the earth and the heavens have the same origin or many other of the questions that we have discussed here because this was part of a conference. And Maurice Bukai, a lot of people think he, he converted to Islam. He has said repeatedly that he has not. Uh, and he has a number of books, and one of them is very, very well known. Uh, Chief of Surgical Clinic in his time at the University of Paris. So he writes, our knowledge of these disciplines is such that it is impossible to explain how a text produced at the time of the Quran could have contained ideas that have only been discovered in modern times. The above observation makes a hypothesis advanced by those who see Muhammad as the author of the Quran untenable. How could a man from being illiterate become the most important author in terms of literary merits in the whole of Arab, uh, Arabic literature? How could he then pronounce truths of a scientific nature that no other human being could possibly have developed at that time, and all this without once making the slightest error in his pronouncement on the subject? And I think, I'm, yeah, I'm done here. So long story short, this was kind of the quick exposition of this second part of the series, second lesson of the series. So um, we went basically through the high level, through the claim of Prophet Muhammad himself, one, and two, now we spend a little bit of time exploring his main miracle, again, as an introductory level, not going in detail. We still have something to sort out with the Holy Quran, because someone may come back and say, how do we know that this is actually the same book that was revealed to Prophet Muhammad? Uh, so this is going to be the topic of the next lesson, so the authenticity of the text of the Quran. So we go through its history, how was it put together, how was it compiled, and the history of the Quran until today. Uh, and with that, hopefully, we'll wrap up this topic, and then we'll go to the finality, so khatamiya, which can be interpreted in different ways. So we'll talk about that, and then we'll talk about the notion of universality and why we say that Islam or Islam presents itself as being a universal worldview. وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين. اللهم صل على محمد وعلى محمد. Maybe yeah, a couple, and if I answer them, I'll go very quickly. I'll go right to, to uh, somewhere else. I start. It's a short question. Is it possible for us now humans to, to find 
a law that will allow us to use the wind somehow? Or Yeah, so we said there's two types, very quickly, very short. There's two types of miracles that were presented by the prophets. So there's just the general acts, things that break away with the natural order of things. But the prophet is not saying, this is the proof of my prophethood. Those, there is no logical reason why we can, no one can come and say, I have found a way to do the same thing. And there's no problem in that. Where there is a problem, ideologically or theologically, is to think that a prophet will bring forth, present something as the proof for his revelation. The proof that he is a prophet, and then someone comes and matches that. Because this is a challenge. The main miracle of a prophet that is being presented, and the prophet says, this is the proof that I am a prophet. Because he may do a million other things, but he's not saying this is a proof of my prophet, my prophethood. He usually says this is a proof. That thing that is being presented as the main proof for the miracle, for the claim of prophethood, from a theological perspective, we say it should be impossible. Mm -hmm. This is a divine challenge to humanity. If you cannot match this, then recognize that this is from me. Mm -hmm. Prophet Sulaiman did not say this is a proof of mine. Yeah. That's why I'm saying logically there should be no reason. Okay. But for someone now to come and actually say, I can control the wind at will and move an entire army using the wind from one place to another, I don't know if humanity will ever advance to that level. Yeah. There was a question here? Okay. Yes, uh, one part, uh, Allah, meaning what? Allah? Yes, Allah. Allah. So there's a number of theories about what Allah means. Uh, the biggest two theories is uh, because some of them say that it was a proper noun in itself. Allah. Allah was revealed as a proper noun. This is the name of God. End of story. It's the proper noun referring to God, Allah. So it's just like I call someone Jack or Stan or Mike. You know, it's as simple as that. It's the referent, it's a proper noun, end of story. Okay, so that's one. There's another, uh, two other uh, big theories that say there's a root, a previous root to that word uh, that comes from Elihe. So either it means to worship, the root is the same as worship, or it means to be amazed. So Elihe is Tahayyara, which means to be confused or amazed. So the more you think about God, the more you can't really reach the end of that notion because it's an absolute, it's an infinite. So that's one uh, root of that term, Eliha. And with time, historically, it became Allah. So this is before the time of Prophet Muhammad. So over those centuries, that term changed until it became Allah. So the Arabs knew the word Allah when it was revealed. Okay, so that's one. And the other version is, it comes from Elihe, which, which means to worship, to, to, to pray to or to worship. So that's the, the, the term, the etymology of the term. Yeah, Thank you. Very good question. You're welcome. There was one question there, yeah. In fact, there are two, uh, like related to the two arguments. Uh, the argument of like, the stability of the tone of, of, and the, between during all the 22 years, to what extent this argument can stand when you compare Makisora, which as even as a native speaker, Arabic, I, we do find more difficulties to, to understand Makisora compared to Madanisora, which are basically like, let's say, kind of a more 
more on this development, I can say. This aspect that Microsoft were, were more difficult, more challenging to the people at that time because of the specificities of the regulation during multi time. This, this is the first one. The second one is <coughs> the total co coherence of, uh, of the, like, the protocol. And sometimes people who, who want to challenge this argument raise two or three elements. The first one is the difference between ayat muhtamat or ayat mutashabihat. To what extent this doesn't contradict the, the, like the, top, the argument of total Yeah, so very quickly, your both of your your second question is actually three questions in one, and your first question, and both of them are very advanced, and they're usually topics that are studied under Ulum al-Qur'an, so in the sciences of the Qur'an, but, uh, you know, maybe less than a minute answer for each. The difference in the style between the Mecchi and the Madani, generally speaking, goes back not where it was revealed, but the, the topic that is being addressed. The verses that have to do with the Mecca, the Meccan period, usually have to do with the belief system. So they talk about God and the hereafter and the revelation. A lot of the verses that were revealed in Medina, you see that they're longer because they're explaining laws and they're explaining how to build a society and they're explaining how you're supposed to do inheritance and how you're supposed to... Okay, so this is the main difference. Uh, otherwise, it's not... Uh, when you read the verses, I don't know if I would say they're more or less difficult or easier to understand. I don't know if this is a personal assessment no, for you. It's or... a stylistic way. You know? Yeah. In the, the stylistic form or intonation are more comprises in the... Yes. Microsoft. So my so question to you is, while there are, and there are a lot of studies on this, that you can regroup some verses of the Quran into different styles, do you agree or not that, and I don't know how, how familiar you are with the te Arabic text in Arabic, uh, do you agree or not that there is something in all the verses of the Quran that is distinguishable from anything else? That there is something that puts all of the verses of the Quran under one kind of like uh, overarching style, and then within that there are kind of like sub-styles. Yeah, so I think that's, that's the, the gist of the argument there. The muhkam and the mutashabih, or the idea that can we still talk about the coherence of the Quran when there are verses, the Quran openly says that the verses of the Quran fall in two different categories. Some of them are unambiguous and clear, and some of them are ambiguous <coughs> and carry multiple meanings. That's basically mutashabih. What the Quran is here saying is that if you are, and that's how the verse ends, right? It says that if you are one of those people who's carrying some sort of disease and illness in your heart, then you are going to rely on the verses that are ambiguous to try to make them say things, when in truth, you should have been relying on the clear verses that gave you the general principles. And this is the key. This is a problem with a lot of people when they come to the Quran, you have to be very clear. The Quran presents kind of a code in how to be read. 
It says that there are two types of verses. There are basically the ayat al-muhkamat, the clear verses. They become your principles. They become your overarching principles. So if you have a verse in the Quran that says, and this is a philosophical notion, it's a higher level of abstraction. If you have a verse in the Quran that says about God, there is nothing like unto him. Okay. And then you come to another verse in the Quran and it says, The hand of God is superior or dominant to their hands. Or the might of God, or but let's put the metaphorical aside. Because you know that there is a principle in the Quran, that's your clear, that's the muhkam verse, that says, You cannot come and say God has a hand. So this interpretation is right away rejected. This is, so, Yadullah becomes mutashabih. Because you have an overarching principle in the Quran that already says there's nothing like God. Everything else that we're going to tell you about God is to make you, help you try to understand what God is. But there's nothing like Him. He's not a body. He's not temporal. He's not limited in any way. Don't try to contain or reduce or simplify God into something else. It won't work. Okay? This is kind of a general, general principle. If you understand that, and the entire books are written about this, but this idea of muhkam mutashabih, clear verses and ambiguous verses. Nasakh wal mansukh is another topic, which is have there been verses in the Quran that have been abrogated by others or not? And here is where you would have to exercise your expertise as a scholar. We have scholars who list a few verses in the Quran, and they say these have been nullified, annulled, abrogated by other verses. And these obviously have to do with laws. So a law is put in place, and then God says that law is no longer in effect from now on. And we have scholars who say in, in effect today, there are no verses of the Quran that have been abrogated. When the Quran talks about Nasikh and Mansukh, it's talking about verses revealed to other prophets. So you may find a law that was revealed to another prophet that the verses of the Qur'an had nullified and changed. But that requires an extensive study. You go into the verses of the Qur'an and you see, have it, has it acted? Where do you, where do you fall in there? And I'll, uh, let me just say, the last uh, topic, and that's a huge topic too, because all the Muslims have narrations that say maybe the Qur'an is missing parts or uh, added parts or, or, or. Generally speaking, all the, all the scholars today will say that whatever is between the two covers of the Qur'an, that is the Qur'an. And whoever does not fall under that, they consider them marginal. And they do not even consider them Muslim, to be honest with you. Okay? It's a huge problem that if someone says, I think there's a missing verse in the Qur'an or a verse that was added. Muslims agree that there's not, not a word in the Qur'an that is not there. But because they have narrations that say maybe something was dropped or something was added, then they keep looking for that. But generally speaking, it's not accepted by anyone. Yes? Your answer to the second part of this question, with regards to the literal meanings of verses and the metaphorical meanings of verses. So you gave the example that there's nothing comparable to him. So when God said he has a hand, in reality, we understand this metaphorically. You have to. Now you have a reason to go right. metaphorical. Say it. So God is merciful, God is kind, and we're supposed to manifest these names. Mm -hmm. So we're in turn to some level, on a much lesser level, mm -hmm. comparable to him in the manifestation of those names. Mm -hmm. 
So in the same way he manifests the name, you know, the wise, yeah. and we do to a lesser extent, yeah. could he not then also have a hand? Yeah. But not like that of our hand, like the Asherites would say. Mm -hmm. He has a hand, but you can't ask how. Yes. Okay. So since we can practice that understanding when it comes to moral traits. Sure. Can we not also have that same understanding when it comes to physical traits? Okay, so again, very deep question, you want a 30 second answer. <laughs> so this 30 second answer is the problem with anything that is physical is that as we established in the, in the lessons on Tawheed, on the oneness of God, we said anything that, that's physical is going to contradict the notion of the necessary being. So we have a logical impossibility to say that God is in any way, shape, or form physical. He cannot be limited in space or time, otherwise it would not be God. But well, they're, they're saying without how. Don't ask how. Well, yeah. then, you then, see what then I mean? you don't know what you believe in. But then it almost sounds like they would be saying what we say. No, and this is where you have to distinguish between when you say, I manifest the mercy of God, yeah. and I say, I have a hand and God has a hand, are we talking about the same thing or not? You know, in, in philosophy, when, when you so study, because I know you like philosophy. Of a meaning. Yeah, you know in philosophy, because I know you like, you like philosophy. And one of the first things you study in philosophy is the notion of oneness. And they tell you right away when you start, they tell you there's 11 defi different definitions of one. When you say something is one, one here and one here do not mean the same thing. And so there are 11 different definitions of one. Mm -hmm. If you don't make those distinctions, of course you're going to fall in a logical fallacy. You're going to make a logical mistake. But if you distinguish the categories clearly, you won't have that problem. The moral traits that we're talking about, if you look really deep into them, you're going to not fall into that problem. If I say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has a hand, I'm committing a logical fallacy. I'm going to go back eventually to the old bearded man with the big white beard sitting in the clouds. So quickly, their definition of hand is no longer hand. They're just not, they're not using who's the word they? Directly. Who's they? The Asherites. Uh, you have to ask them. Because we reject that. Yeah. And that's what we would say that then the definition of hand, since they're not asking how, th this, this is falls outside of the At a metaphysical hand. or a, a super uh, philosophical level, either you accept the idea that you're allowed to ask to a certain extent. We're not saying we're going to know the secret of secrets about what God is. Mm. But you have to know what you're worshipping. Oh. And if I say God is, and then they tell you, but you can't ask, they say, you have to say God mm. is, that's what they say, you have to say God is knowledgeable. Okay, what does it mean for me to say he has knowledge, you can't ask? Okay, then why am I saying the word? It's, it becomes like an empty ritual. Okay. Well, that's not the kind of faith we want to build. It's like It hard. needs to be rational. You said about you can't make two Uneven? I can <laughs> of do course it. you're gonna do it. That's <laughs> logical fallacy. Watch, watch, no, say listen, the odd couple. <coughs> Thank you. <laughs> it just came to mind, I had to say the joke. Yes, sir. Just uh, out of uh, off of this question about uh, out of what you said about how the like the main the main proof that uh, a prophet is from God, he says this is my miracles. Shouldn't that miracle be clear to everyone? Correct? Like that's if it's not clear to everyone, then it will be kind of unfair. To everyone that that person is sent to. To everyone that So if we have a prophet that's sent to a village 14, you know, 10 centuries ago, mm. then it has to be clear to the people of that village. Exactly. But if we say so, that that prophet is sent to all of humanity, then that miracle needs to be clear to so, all of humanity. So 
But well, didn't you say that, like when Nabi Allah, Prophet Musa السلام, he dropped the, like the, the cane and it became cane. a snake? Wasn't that only clear to the magicians and not clear to the people? So the people had an excuse? So the people anything? have to rely to the experts. Are you an expert? That's what we said. Either you become an expert so as a people. So you have to rely to the magician. Of course. And they were educated in the way. Because they said that they believe, you are educated. Yes, yes. Yeah, and they did believe. But that's the idea, like everything else in your life. But it's you different. either are an expert, and this is convincing to you, or go ask the expert. Either you can heal yourself, or you go to the doctor and you ask them and follow their expertise and ask them to try to help you heal yourself. Either you know how to fix your garage door, or you go to the expert and they help you fix but it. Wouldn't you say that it's kind of unfair because the miracle wasn't clear to them, them like within their own eyes? No. Maybe somebody didn't trust magic at all. That's fine. They have to and go to that prophet who, who is there between them, and they will ask. And Prophet Musa السلام, the Quran says he gave them nine consecutive signs. That was one sign, right? He sent the frogs, and the water turned into wine, uh, to blood, and and. Uh, so. Just take one, see if there's a Sure, yes, there is one. Okay. Are you going to ask me next week or are you going to ask me now? No, no, it's about the topic of next week. Okay, inshallah. If I don't answer it, then remember it and ask it. That's the case, then we end. Okay, we end, yes. Thank you so much.